The reading tonight is Ezekiel chapter 16, starting at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, Live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew, you who were naked and bare. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring in your nose, earrings on your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey, and olive oil. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty, because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. Such things should not happen, nor should they ever occur. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes to put on them, and you offered my oil and incense before them. Also the food I provided for you, the fine flour, olive oil, and honey I gave to you, you offered as fragrant incense before them. This is what happened, declares the Sovereign Lord. And you took your sons and daughters, whom you bore to me, and sacrificed them as food to the idols. Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols. In all your detestable practices and your prostitution, 
you did not remember the days of your youth, when you were naked and bare, kicking about in your blood. Woe, woe to you, declares the Sovereign Lord. In addition to all your wickedness, you built a mound for yourselves and made a lofty shrine in every, in, in every public square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty shrines and degraded your beauty, offering your body with increasing promiscuity to anyone who passed by. You engaged in prostitution with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, and provoked me to anger with your increasing promiscuity. So I stretched out my hand against you and reduced your territory. I gave you over to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of of the Philistines, who were shocked by your lewd conduct. You engaged in prostitution with the Assyrians too, because you were insatiable. And even after that, you still were not satisfied. Then you increased your promiscuity to include Babylonia, a land of merchants. But even with this, you were not satisfied. How weak-willed you are, declares the Sovereign Lord. When you do all these things, acting like a brazen prostitute, when you built your mounds at the head of every street and made your lofty shrines in every public square, you were unlike a prostitute because you scorned payment. You adulterous wife, you preferred strangers to your own husband. Every prostitute receives a fee, but you give gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from everywhere for your illicit favors. So in your prostitution, you are the opposite of others. No one runs after you for favors. You are the very opposite, for you give payment and none is given to you. Therefore, you prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because you poured out your wealth and exposed your nakedness in your promiscuity with your lovers, and because of all your detestable idols, and because you gave them children's blood, therefore, I'm going to gather all your lovers with whom you found pleasure, those you loved as well as those you hated. I will gather them against you from all round and will strip you in front of them and they will see all your nakedness. I will sentence you to the punishment of women who commit adultery and who shed blood. I will bring upon you the blood vengeance of my wrath and jealous anger. Then I will hand you over to your lovers, and they will tear down your mounds and destroy your lofty shrines. They will strip you of your clothes and take your fine jewelry and leave you naked and bare. They will bring a mob against you, who will stone you and hack you to pieces with their swords. They will burn down your houses and inflict punishment on you in the sight of many women. I will put a stop to your prostitution, and you will no longer pay your lovers. Then my wrath against you will subside, and my jealous anger will turn away from you. I will be calm and no longer angry. Because you do not remember the days of your youth, but enraged me with these things, I will surely bring down on your head what you have done, declares the Sovereign Lord." Did you not add lewdness to all your other detestable practices? Everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote this proverb about you, like mother, like daughter. You're a true daughter of your mother, who despised her husband and her children, and you're a true sister of your sisters, who despised their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite, your father an Amorite. Your older sister was Samaria, who lived to the north of you, 
with her daughters, and your younger sister, who lived to the south of you with her daughters, was Sodom. Not only, you not only walked in their ways and copied their detestable practices, but in all your ways you soon became more depraved than they. As surely as I live, live, declares the Sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you and your daughters have done. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were, they were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. Samaria did not commit half the sins you did. You have done more detestable things than they, and have made your sisters seem righteous by all these things you have done. Bear your disgrace, for you have furnished some justification for your sisters. Because your sins were more vile than theirs, they appear more righteous than you. So then be ashamed and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear righteous. However, I will restore the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters, and of Samaria and her daughters, and your fortunes among them, so that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all you have done in giving them comfort. And your sisters, Sodom with her daughters and Samaria with her daughters, will return to what they were before, and you and your daughters will return to what you were before. You not even mention your sister Sodom in the day of your pride, because your wickedness was uncovered. Even so, you are now scorned by the daughters of Edom, and all her neighbours, and the daughters of the Philistines, all those around you who despise you. You will bear the consequences of your lewdness, and your detestable practices, declares the Lord. This is what the, Lord, the Sovereign Lord says, I will deal with you as you deserve, because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both those who are older than you and those who are younger. I will give them you as, your, as daughters, but not on the basis of my covenant with you. So I will establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord. Then, when I make atonement for you, for all you have done, you will remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the Sovereign Lord. This is God's word. Okay, Ezekiel, he's not taming his language. If you've been here for the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, you'll know that. Let's uh, pray that God would help us as uh, we look at this passage. Our Father, we're very grateful that you uh, speak to us because uh, sometimes we'd get you wrong. Uh, sometimes we would uh, misunderstand the sort of God you are. And I, this is one of those passages where we may be surprised at the strength of the language. We may be surprised at how you reveal yourself. But Father, would you teach us? Teach us rightly so we understand who you are, the sort of God that you are, and that we would respond to you rightly as well. Amen. God then is jealous. The God of the Bible is a jealous God. Is that all right? I mean, really, is that, is that okay for him to be jealous? I mean, we may not like that language. Perhaps at first glance it seems strange. I, uh, I observed uh, that uh, Oprah Winfrey, as has um, 
I don't know what you do if you're a painter and saying to television, retire or something, um, but uh, has stood back from her, her show. I remember reading it, reminding me, I read an interview with her once, uh, and she was asked about Christianity. She said she was completely turned off from the Christian faith, and she remembers the occasion. It was because a preacher described God as jealous, and she said, no, I don't like that, and just walked away and rejected it completely. Or uh, one of his uh, pithy quotes in uh, The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins, dismisses the God of the Bible for repeatedly breaking into a monumental rage whenever his chosen people flirt with a rival God. So God is jealous. Is that okay? Is that okay for God to be jealous? Well, I think when we think about it, most people would accept that there is, there's good jealousy and bad jealousy. Now, bad jealousy is just self-centered. It's all about me. He has a new car. I want it. I want it. I'm jealous of his car because I want it for myself. That sort of jealousy is just self-centered and bad. Uh, most, yes, of course, that's bad jealousy. But there is good jealousy as well. So at least in two ways that I could think of. One would be jealousy for someone else's welfare. So you can be jealous for the welfare of another. So we've been looking at uh, 2 Corinthians um, we're not in Ezekiel. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, the Apostle Paul, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, Jesus Christ. Hmm. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. So there's clearly godly jealousy, which is, I want you to be loyal to Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm concerned for you. It's an other person concern. And you can see that in normal human relationships. You so the, uh, the, the, the parents uh, may say to their daughter as she gets engaged to the rogue, I am jealous for you. No, no one here. Um, I am jealous for you. I am jealous for the fidelity of your husband. I am jealous for your future marriage. I am concerned for you. And that's entirely appropriate. You want that in your parents, for them to be concerned for you in the person you want to marry. So other, per- other person-centered jealousy, jealousy for another, that's simple, isn't it? Jealousy for another, uh, I think that's good jealousy. And then I guess most people would accept it's okay or appropriate to be jealous when something that is yours is stolen from you. That's normal. So even, dare I say it, Richard Dawkins, if somehow he was tricked in some great financial scam and all of his money was lost, Everything, he lost everything, even the house he was living in. He was duped in some crazy Ponzi scheme or something or other. And he said, hmm, I'm a little bit irritated that all that my money's been stolen. In fact, I rage that all my money that is mine has been stolen. You might say, fair enough, Richard. What is yours has been stolen. Fair enough to be irritated by that. It's okay to be jealous for something that is yours. If you cleverly picked my pocket this evening and stole my wallet, it would be okay for me to be irritated. I am jealous for my wallet. Kind of odd, of course. But you see, in that sense of using the word, fair enough. And much more so of a marriage. Marriage is one of, I guess, only two relationships that the Bible speaks of that are a unique commitment between two parties. There is a commitment between a man and a woman in marriage to be faithful to one another. 
you say in the wedding service, all that I am, I give to you, all that I am, I share with you. And you say that to one another, I am yours, I belong to you, says the husband. And the wife says, and I am yours, no, no, no. I am yours, and I belong to you. That's what they say to one another. They belong to one another. You're mine, in a positive sense. And therefore, if someone interferes in that marriage relationship, it is entirely appropriate to be jealous and say, that is my wife. Leave her alone. And if there's indifference, well, it's, it's a pretty feeble marriage at that point. So in those two senses, I think at least jealousy is a positive thing. Uh, jealousy for another's welfare and jealousy for something that is yours and you own. That's entirely appropriate to be jealous in those two ways. Now, uh, when God declares himself then a jealous God, it is in those two senses. He is jealous for our welfare and he's jealous for us because we are his. He made us for a relationship with him. So it is a positive, good thing that God is jealous. And the extraordinary thing about this chapter of uh, the Bible in this chapter of Ezekiel, chapter 16, is God is, uh, we're in a section, um, let me remind you, uh, the book of Ezekiel, then really in simply two sections. Uh, chapters 1 to 33, Ezekiel says there's going to be judgment. And then chapters 33 to 48, he says, but God will bless you after that. Now, he's preaching in the 6th century. Um, he's preaching to uh, 10,000 or so people who are in exile. They were citizens of Israel, they did live in Jerusalem, but they were captured in battle and taken off, and they're now living in Babylon. They're a captured people. And they're thinking, well, quite soon we'll go back to Jerusalem. And Ezekiel preaches to them saying, no, you won't. You are so bad, Jerusalem is so bad, the whole city is going to be destroyed in five years' time. So the first 33 chapters is him preaching for about five years, from um, 592 BC to 587 BC. He's preaching that message. So in that section of the book, the first half, which is... Judgment. It's judgment, then grace, really is how the book works. But in that first half, he's preaching judgment. And yet, this is the, the dominant picture of the section. This chapter 16 is, it's the longest single prophecy, or technically oracle, in the Bible. You may have felt that as it was read. Um, but it's longer than a number of the minor prophets in their entirety, just this one chapter. And so in the longest single oracle, the longest single word that God gives in the whole of the Bible, how does he choose to reveal himself? It's as a vulnerable lover. It's very striking. I mean, once it's the whole thing is a court case, chapter 16. Uh, here's the, you know, you're in um, Jerusalem, they're the accused. Here's the charge sheet against you, and it's a prosecution. You've done this, and you've done this, and you've done this. So in one sense, it's a law court. But the judge is not distant and aloof and uncaring. He's the husband who says, you've betrayed me. And, doesn't say it quite so explicitly, but chapter 6, I am pained. I am grieved by you. Now, that's got to have an impact on how we perceive of God. And God's being angry with people who reject him. He is not the aloof judge. He is the husband. And I don't know if you've ever seen this. 
But if you ever see or meet up with someone immediately after a discovery of adultery, it is miserable. It is miserable. They react in different ways. Some, there is anger and hostility, and if it's the husband who's been wronged, sometimes I want to get him. I want to get him. And you just can't, you know, calm down, you just calm people down. Other times, there's just complete bewilderment and passivity. And they're just crushed. Crushed by it. I mean, the reactions vary, but it's always miserable. And in the longest oracle in the whole Bible, God chooses to say, I feel like that. That's how I feel about people that I have made and loved. I am hurting. Very striking picture. Let's, uh, let's run through it. I'll try to break it down, uh, how the text breaks down, but um, we'll dwell on some parts longer than others. First then, it uh, breaks down like this, chapter 16. The first 14 verses, God loves the unlovely. Uh, that's the picture of uh, verses 1 to 14. Now, uh, you may have picked up, but the whole chapter then is this allegory, or um, uh, metaphor, you could call it. Uh, Jerusalem is the woman. Now, Jerusalem here is just, uh, I guess you'd say a metonymy, or uh, represents the whole of the people in the Old Testament, God's people, Israel. So he's chosen here just to describe it as Jerusalem. Okay? Uh, so Jerusalem is the woman, and God is the man. I mean, hopefully you picked that up as it was read. So what happens then uh, in chapter 16? Well, God loves the unlovely. We're told as it starts off, uh, Jerusalem, uh, your ancestry and birth, verse 3. You're in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite. Your mother was a Hittite. Um, So before uh, David conquered Jerusalem and made it the capital of Israel in about 1000 BC, uh, it was a pagan city, uh, but they didn't do much for her. So the picture is then of this Jerusalem, this woman abandoned. Verse 4, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion to do any of these things for you. You were thrown out into the open field. From the day you were born, you were despised. I mean, that's awful, isn't it? Can you imagine just walking past a child that's just been completely abandoned? Still blood everywhere. You, I don't know, many of you have been the birth of a child. There is blood everywhere and um, just abandoned. And our day and age, how can that happen? How can that happen? And it happens far, far less now. There are decent resources in, in, in society to make sure that it doesn't happen. But back then, fairly common. Fairly common, an unwanted child, just abandoned. Helpless. What could that child do, achieve on its own? Nothing, just die. Very unlovely, this thing, crawling around. But, verse 6, God came along in the, uh, in the parable or allegory. Then I passed by, said God, and saw you kicking about in your blood, and as you lay there in your blood, I said, you live. And that's what it takes. God speaks, and everything changes. So, verse 7, Jerusalem flourishes. The woman, the girl, flourishes. I made you grow up like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, uh, you who were naked and bare. So, this baby gets taken care of by the man and she grows up and she flourishes. She blossoms and blooms. She becomes a, by the end of verse 7, a young woman ready to marry. She's of uh, marriageable age. It's all down to the man's love, the sort of parental care for her. 
the, the metaphor shifts slightly in verse 8. So later I passed by, and uh, when I looked at you and saw you're old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you, covered your nakedness, and uh, he marries her. He marries her. I mean, essentially, he gives her everything she lacked. He covers her with his garment. That's a, that's a marriage proposal. Ladies, if you see a man running towards you with a duvet, <laughs> you know what's coming. Um, but uh, in those days, the, uh, uh, it, it, he used to be covered with a garment. That was, that was the way of proposing. He covers her. He washes her, verse 9. He anoints her, verse 9. All those three things that should have happened as a baby. Covered, washed, anointed as a, as a child. No, he does all these things for her. No one else had. And so she continues to grow and flourish. So he lavishes gifts on her. Uh, verse 10, extravagant clothes. Verse 11, I adorned you with jewelry, bracelets on your arms and neck and nose and earrings and a beautiful crown. I mean, sort of every bodily part gets some gold on it. This is the most expensive punk in history. She's got gold uh, sort of everywhere. Verse 13, you're adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were fine and in costly fabric and broidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey and olive oil. It's not just these are a good husband who's gone and done the shopping for her down at Sainsbury's. Um, but those are the expensive items of the day. This is God has blessed these people with good harvests. And fine flour, honey and olive oil, expensive things to trade. She is wealthy. And so what happens? By the end of verse 13, you became very beautiful and you rose to be a queen and your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. Now, historically, this is true. So God takes Abraham, a nobody, grows a, a nation out of him, Israel, they're from the back end of nowhere, they're slaves in Egypt, and moves them to uh, Canaan, when their kingdom or their country is smack in the middle of all the important trade routes. And so they become incredibly wealthy as a nation, small nation, but incredibly wealthy. Money everywhere. So uh, at the time of King Solomon, they are the, the envy of the earth. They're the most successful, prosperous nation in the world at that time. Everyone envies them. They really do flourish. Now, just pause, because we're going to have to keep saying this. This is, then, a parable or allegory of God's love for his people in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, summarized as Jerusalem. And yet, it is still true that it's a picture of God's love for his people in the New Testament as well, his church. That's a very easy parallel to make across the two because the same metaphor is still used. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom, bridegroom, excuse me, and uh, the church is his bride. The same metaphor is used. I think it's fair also to say, one step beyond, you could describe this as God the creator and any people because God takes people and says live and makes them flourish and has given humanity a planet to inhabit and uh, uh, raw materials to, to use and grow and be successful with. So I think you could say that as well. But it's certainly most obviously true, biblically, of the Christian. That God takes people 
And when they become Christians, his care for them, his love for them, causes them to flourish in a way they wouldn't have done otherwise. Sometimes, not always, sometimes, you, or quite often, let me say, quite often you see this in, in marriages. Uh, so people get married, and uh, six months, a year in, you say, huh, she's really flourishing in marriage. That's great. Or, huh, he's really flourishing. We always knew he just needed to get married, and all would be well. Um, he's really fl- And often that's the case, because when there's a commitment and the security of a covenant relationship, a promise to one another that's there, and someone is committed to your well-being, in a good marriage, of course, someone is committed to your well-being, you flourish. And yet, of course, the human marriage is only a picture, just a picture of God's love for his people. And when you become a Christian, you flourish under his care and concern for you. Now, of course, you could say, well, it hasn't happened to me. It's not my experience. Well, how much have you invested in the relationship? I mean, human marriages, they don't flourish if they never speak, if they sleep in separate beds, if they... You know, you've got to be committed for it to work. But if you're committed to a relationship with God, you'll flourish. He'll grow you. That's what happens. God loves the unlovely. Nothing inherently good about us. He looks down and says, well, there's a mess. But I can love them. God loves the unlovely. Uh, second, but. But humans are whores. Humans are whores. 21 times in this chapter, you get um, the people being described as a prostitute or a whore. I mean, you can translate it either way is, is, is fine. Uh, I've chosen just to emphasize their whores because I think it still has somewhat more of the, uh, the shock value that this chapter is meant to have. In truth, there are a number of places in, in chapter 16 where it's translated in quite a, a polite way. And I have no inherent pleasure in being shocking in my language. But when we're more polite than God is in his word, there's something gone a bit wrong. When he's written to shock, and I think this is one of the most shocking chapters in the Bible, when he's written to shock, we, we need to let him do that. Humans are whores. He says. Now, verse 15 makes no real sense. So uh, he's, uh, he's God, he's taken this people, and he's caused them to flourish. They were nothing. He's given them everything, and they're the envy of the earth. Fantastic. Uh, verse 15, but, but you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. That makes no sense. If you've got great beauty and fame, what would you do with it? Um, most of you have, so it's not a hypothetical question. No, but what would you do? What would you do if you have, you know, you've got great beauty and fame, so... Be a TV star, so be a pop star, so be a film star, whatever. You've got enormous talent and beauty and fame, so why don't you become a prostitute? It's not an obvious career choice when you've been given so much. That's what they do. It makes no sense. It is a stupid thing to do. And essentially the whole description from there on in is a description of how the people worshipped foreign gods. They didn't trust God for their security. They didn't look to God, the, the Lord, their God, to protect them, to satisfy them, to give them what they required. 
But they went and chatted to the Babylonians and had a few of their gods and worshipped them and the Egyptians and their gods and the uh, Amorites, yeah, will have your gods. So they had this complete mishmash of a religion. So it's their idolatry that he's really going to attack. Now, very briefly on it, let me uh, make a few observations. Number one, this idolatry then, it begins with pride, verse 15. You trusted in your beauty rather than in me, says God. I had given you everything, and you said, yeah, yeah, I'm quite something. I am beautiful. I am talented. I can do things. Begins with pride, this idolatry. Uh, Then 16 to 19, it really sucks your resources. So here, all the things that God has given them, the the fine clothes, the gold, the silver, the olive oil, the fine flour, the honey, uh, all given away, all offered as uh, sacrifices to these little statues and idols that the people were making. It sucks their resources. Verses 20 to 22, even to the extent it'll suck their human resources. Uh, One of the gods was Molech, uh, the Canaanite god Molech, and he demanded child sacrifice. Well, he demanded. He's not a god. He's a a made-up thing. But that was what you did. You offered your children. That's how bad things are got. So this, their idolatry, it begins with pride. It, It sucks their resources. It's progressive. So verse... Verses uh, 23 downwards, it gets worse. Woe, woe to you. You build a, 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 verse 24, you build a mound for yourself and a lofty shrine in every public square. Let me give you these verses, uh, I guess more literally, verse 25. At the head of every street, you build your shrines. You degrade your beauty, sorry, opening your legs to anyone who passed by. Verse 26, you engage in prostitution with the Egyptians, with their massive members. See, here's one of those places, it's been slightly polished over, but God is saying, you're a whore and I hate what you're doing. You will open your legs to anyone. And basically, you'll chase the person with the biggest member. You're a whore. Anyone will do. Anyone that passes by, you'll just whore yourself out. And I'm fed up with that. It's progressive. Uh, It doesn't satisfy, it's insatiable. So on it goes, on and on it goes. So uh, uh, verse 26, you engage in prostitution with the Egyptians. Verse 28, you engage in prostitution with the Assyrians, uh, but you weren't satisfied. It was insatiable. Verse 29, you increased your promiscuity to include Babylonia, a land of merchants. Even with this, you were not satisfied. So they'll try anything. They'll try any of the nations. Can you give us security? If we pray to your gods, will we get more rain? What about you? Can we try your gods? We'll make some new statues. and Try anything. Because once you reject gods and pursue other little gods, idols, they'll never, they'll never satisfy. They're not mentors. What we sung, we turn away from the living gods to things that are, that are no gods. That is a stupid thing to do. Of course, very easy to think. Odd people (laughs) living in odd times and uh, nothing to do with us. Well, of course, it's enormously contemporary. I don't know if you saw the film uh, Revolutionary Road uh, when it came out. Uh, Kate Winslet and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio again. Uh, They were the couple Frank and April. If you see Revolutionary Road, have you seen it? It's sort of 
American Beauty Part 2. It's Sam Mendes once again saying, Gosh, suburbs in the States, they're really miserable places to be. Um, so he has another go at uh, pushing that same theme. Same theme. So Frank and April, uh, they're a young couple. They've got two children. And they move to Revolutionary Road. That's the street they live on. Oh, they've got the dream house. Now, <clears throat> now life begins. They've got the house they want. And uh, they, they, they push on in their careers. But she's an actress and that all goes a bit wrong. And his job is just dull. So they think, oh, well, you know, actually life is not good, is it? We're rowing with one another. The house hasn't done it. The jobs haven't done it. Paris. Let's move to Paris. Such a romantic place. Let's try a new city. The house didn't do it. The jobs didn't do it. Let's try the city. We'll move to Paris. And so that's the plan. But then um, uh, he gets a, a promotion at work, bizarrely. And, oh, some money. Hmm, well, we'll be okay now. Now we've got money. She's furious. I want to go to Paris. She gets pregnant and says, mm, I'm going to have an abortion because if we have another baby, we'll have to stay here and I want to go to Paris. She'll sacrifice her child for her new God. So they try uh, the house, that doesn't really do it. The jobs, they don't really do it. The new city, well, money doesn't quite. Uh, so in the end, they both have affairs. And, well, that doesn't really do it either. One's a sort of um, at work and it doesn't mean anything. One's a sort of big, just uh, a, a moment of passion, doesn't really do anything. And in the end, well, she dies. Yeah, it's, it's miserable. It's miserable. But it is asking, he's asking the question, same question he always asks. What are you living for? What are you living for? See, there they go, they just chop and change. That'll make us happy. No, what about that? What about that? What about that? What are you living for? You know, he's not a Christian, of course. And that's what God says. What are you living for? You're, you're whore after one thing. So you'll spread your legs for this and that. What are you going to whore after next? And if, if you're here as a Christian, I mean, one sense is much worse. Can, you can follow the same progression. Pride. Yeah, I've got, I've got abilities. I've got talent. I am handsome. The world is my oyster. I can do things in this world. And then you may give away or let, let your idol suck your resources. Just give and give and give yourself to whatever it may be. Education. Or career. Or health and well-being. You just give and give and give yourself to these things. You're insatiable. May try a whole number of things. But God would say to all of us, God would say to the Christian in particular, I guess, will you stop your whoring after other things? They will not satisfy you. And I'm fed up with my people spreading their legs for any new thing that comes by. Will you realize I'm the one that satisfies you? You stop being a whore. It's not pleasant, is it? But it's striking. If you read through Ezekiel, and we may not think in these terms, but our chasing after other little gods, our investing our hopes, ambitions, daydreams in the perfect marriage, that won't happen. The perfect job, that'll never happen. It's no, it's no better or worse than witchcraft. 
God will put them in the same camp, really, just chasing after other things. Humans are whores, says God. Let's close it up. Two two other things briefly then. First, uh, God hates adultery. Uh, Here's his response. It comes in verses uh, 35 to 42. Uh, It comes most clearly, I guess, in verse 38. I will sentence you to the punishment of women who commit adultery and who shed blood. I'll bring upon you the blood vengeance of my wrath and jealous anger. Here again the prediction that Jerusalem would be destroyed in 587 BC. Remember, this is an allegory. It's a picture But he's saying, oh, the city will be destroyed and Jerusalem and and the people of Israel will be brought low as a nation. They'll be absolutely crushed and humbled. And verse 42, when that happens, well, then my wrath against you will subside. My jealous anger will turn away from you. Then I'll be calm and no longer angry. Now, what do you make of that? God's anger. If a husband comes home one day and discovers his wife in bed with another man, how do you expect him to react? Indifferent? Oh, hello, I'll put the kettle on. What do you you expect him to do? If there's indifference, there's no love. Revolutionary Road, there's one very miserable part. Frank and April are at breakfast one day, and Frank says, oh, by the way, I've been having an affair uh, with my secretary at work. She says, oh, have you? I don't care. More tea. It's just indifference. And you realize at that point there's nothing. That's not a marriage. There's no love. She doesn't care. If you love, if you care, you get angry when your spouse is stolen from you. It hurts. There is pain. That's normal and natural. The Lord cares about spiritual adultery. He cares about it. Again, sometimes uh, you meet with someone who you meet with a couple and there's been adultery. And I say the reactions vary. Sometimes the response, particularly if the wife is wronged, sometimes the response is, yes, well, I know he's made a mistake, but I just want to get back to normal now. And that's a mistake. Because if you just say, well, let's just pretend it didn't really happen and move on because we don't want to... You know, it will disrupt the family. It will be awkward if everyone else knows. Let's just move on and pretend it doesn't happen. That's a mistake. Because in six months, a year's time, it'll happen again. Because the issue's not being addressed. See, God loves his people. He loves his people. So he says, I'm going to address your adultery. There will be judgment upon it. But then there's grace. Last thing verses, uh, in particular, 59 to 63. So this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I'll deal with you as you deserve. You despise my oath by breaking the covenant, and yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth. So I will remember that I made a promise, a covenant to Abraham, which I reestablished with Moses, and which grew larger when I promised to David, that I would commit myself to Abraham's descendants forever. There'll be a king who would reign over you forever. I'm not forgetting that, but instead, verse 60, I'll make an everlasting covenant with you. And that will change things. The consistent message of Ezekiel is there's judgment and then there's grace. God won't give up on his people. 
when there is adultery, something's got to happen. That needs to be addressed. But beyond that, there is forgiveness. The message is judgment, then grace. And that is the message of the cross. That God can't just take our adultery and just sweep it under the carpet and say, it doesn't really matter. It does matter. He takes sin far more seriously than you and me. He has a perfect sense of right and wrong. So he can't just sweep it under the carpet. It matters. There is judgment. But the Christian is one who knows that that judgment has fallen upon Christ in their place. So there is judgment. There was judgment 2,000 years ago. But there's grace. There's grace for anyone now who puts their faith in him. It's always grace after judgment. So once again, God would say, live. You've been ungrateful. You're a mess. But live. Put your faith in my son and live. And flourish and grow. Now look, is this your God? Strong language he uses here. But is this your God? Is, is your God a distant, aloof judge who's cold, like Allah? No real interest. Or is he the God of the scriptures, the living God, who is vulnerable and involved? And never more vulnerable and involved than when he became a man who died to rescue people, to show them grace through judgment. Never more vulnerable than that. That's where sin is paid for. That's where atonement takes place. Final verse, verse 63. Then, when I make atonement for you, for all you've done, what will happen? Well, two things will happen. And these are the two things that should happen to you and me. We realize that God is a God who cares. And if we understand that Jesus has made atonement for us, two things should happen. Number one, we'll remember and be ashamed. That's the first. We'll remember our sins and be ashamed. That is part of being a Christian. That you look upon your sins before you're a Christian and say, I don't celebrate what I was like. I'm ashamed of how I offended God. And even now as a Christian, I'm ashamed of how I've lived. I'm ashamed of the mistakes I've made. And I, I'm going to confess those. I'm going to confess those to God. I'm going to confess those to two or three other human people so that it's out in the open. And that's why we'll always say a public confession together to remind ourselves that we should be ashamed. Even when we know atonement, there's shame for the sin we commit. And since if you're a Christian, try and put it this way, if you're a Christian, the next time you're conscious of turning your back on God, you think, yeah, what I should do here is this, but you know what, I'm just quite tempted to go and do this instead. You may want to think, how would you feel if your spouse was sleeping with lots of different people? Or if you discover that one of your parents had been going through a repeated pattern of sleeping around with whoever she could get hold of, whoever he could find to sleep with, how would you feel and God says, that's how I feel. That's how I feel. When you don't trust me. When you walk away from me, even as Christians, that's how I feel. We should be ashamed. 
at last. But we never again open our mouths to boast. I think that's what it means, uh, 63. We never again open our mouths to boast of our own beauty, of our own fame, of our own talents, of our own abilities. But we open our mouths to boast of God, of the sort of God who he is, the God who cares so much that he make himself so vulnerable that he'd die to take judgment and offer us grace. Who'd say, you have been a hopeless whore of a wife. But we can go, we can go again. We can have another go. There's always more grace, but it costs, and God is the God who pays it. Let's pray together. Our Father, we wouldn't naturally think of you in these terms as a God who is vulnerable, although you are mighty, although you are sovereign, although none, none could compete with your power. You make yourself vulnerable to humanity. You expose, dare we put it this way, you expose your heart to grief and disappointment and hurt. And yet we thank you that we know this is true and that you, despite this, love us so much that you'd make yourself even more vulnerable than that in order to pay for our adultery. We praise you for being such a God. Amen.